When that April, with his showers sweet, the drought of March hath pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in such liqueur, from which virtue engendered is the flower. When Zephyrus, eke with his sweeter breath, inspired hath in every holt and heath a tender crocus, and the young sun hath in the ram his half-course run, and smaller fowlers make an melody that sleepen all the night with open eye. So pricketh them nature in their courages, then long and folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to seeken stranger strands, to distant shrines known in sundry lands. And especially from every shire's end of England to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that them hath helpen when that they were weak. Hello and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining us once again is our pal, Martin Gray. Hi, Martin. Hi there, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you back on the show. Uh, many, many months ago, uh, Martin was kind enough to send me a DVD of a movie completely unprompted. Uh, it just arrived in the mail one day, and the film is A Canterbury Tale, from 1944, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, two of the most interesting people ever to direct movies. Uh, Previously, I've covered one of their movies, um, A Stairway to Heaven Slash, A Matter of Life and Death, that I did with uh, Mark Lax a bunch of episodes ago. These guys, for those of you who haven't seen any of their films, the closest comparison I can make would be like sort of the Coen brothers in terms of that, like these guys, Pal and Pressburger really made their own movies. They were like their own genre because they just did such movies that were so specific to them. I would, I would argue they're a lot less kind of dark and cynical than the Coen brothers, but it, in terms of their just unusualness, it's the closest comparison I can make. And this film is a comedy slash drama mystery. IMDb's uh, write-up is very brief, and it says, Three modern-day pilgrims investigate a bizarre crime in a small town on the way to Canterbury. I mean, ostensibly that is the plot, but that is not really this movie. Uh, Martin, how would you describe this movie, and why did you think to send this to me? Well, I, I would describe it as, yeah, a, a very odd slice of movie making from a very particular time period. I mean, it was, it was made, what, just after, just after the war. And it's look, looking back at a time when sort of people from all backgrounds were just, you know, getting together, getting on with the war effort. I mean, when I think about how much the people of the world, the free world, achieved in just, you know, six, six years or something like that, how you know how they sort of put into so many systems into place and all everyone got together? It, it just you know it just I get full up with tears and things thinking about it. And in this film, you know, you have you know a, a, an English an English shop girl who's on her way to becoming a land girl, you know, working on the farms in the countryside for the war effort. You have a visiting American soldier, you know, ready for the D-Day landings, getting ready. You have the English sergeant. You know, three people with ostensibly nothing much in common, but they're brought they're brought together by circumstance after meeting on a train. And they solve the mystery, but like you say, it's not all about you know finding out who who's behind what's going on in the village. It's just about sort of showing how people can you know work together, form friendships. First impressions of the, of the countryside can be sort of wrong. You, it's just about you know it's a lot. It's like a town full of eccentrics, but everybody's welcome. You know whether they're from other parts of England or Britain, 
or you know the wider world i think one of the things i just like about it is just there's just such a peculiar atmosphere to the whole thing yeah, I was. I did a lot of reading about this movie uh, after I watched it because I, I did enjoy it. I mean, the, the Powell and Pressburger's movies are just again they're so specific to their kind of point of view that I really find them very very compelling. I haven't seen all of them. I, I do want to kind of see the rest of them. Have you ever been to this particular part of England? I haven't. Not. I've been to most parts of England, but I've never been down to Kent. No, I've, I've sort of you know, passed passed by it on the way to on the way to London. Okay. On the way to but I've never actually been to Kent itself, no. All right, because I was reading about that Michael Powell, who co-wrote his movies with Emmerich Pressburger, really considered this movie as kind of a love letter to his hometown. And as you mentioned, it, it's about these three uh, disparate characters that end, they're on a train together and they end up in Canterbury. And it's it's Alison Smith, played by Sheila Sim. Uh, the, sar- the British sergeant is named Peter Gibbs. He's played by Dennis Price. And then the army sergeant is Bob Johnson, played by John Sweet. And one of the things immediately that you notice from this movie is John Sweet uh, is very, very kind of unusual. And that's because he was not a actor. He was an actual just British. He was a, a, a just an, a U.S. sergeant that happened to be stationed in that part of the country. And Powell and Pressburger cast him. So this is the only film John Sweet ever did. And so his line readings are not typical of the way you would see Hollywood actors sort of behave. And that immediately gives you kind of just an, a sense of, of how unusual this movie is going to be because he just doesn't sound like anybody else you would see in a movie. He, he really does. Apparently he was spotted in a production of Our Town, the famous, was that Thornton Wilder or something like the famous play? Yes. But uh, he's got such a lovely down-home quality, really. You know, he's a bit like, I suppose, a Jimmy Stewart part, I could imagine, imagine being... But it, it seems that he never made any more films after this. Just went back and became a teacher. Yeah, yeah. He just did. <laughs> he did this one movie, and that was it. Yeah, and it seems that he donated his two thousand pound fee to to the uh, uh, the advancement of coloured, you know, of coloured people. I read that. That was yeah. He yeah. donated his salary to the NAACP because, as a serving U.S. soldier, the U.S. Army did not allow him to make any money from anywhere else. Which, you know. A, very unusual to, to, I mean, he had to donate the money, but for a, a white man in 1944 to donate uh, his salary to the NAACP, it's like, it says a lot about uh, Mr. Sweet. And I really like him in this movie. The, the whole setup is they're on this train together, and John Sweet, mis- or Bob Johnson actually, he's the character, he misunderstands uh, when to get off on the train station. And a lo- there's a lot of that in this movie about how the British you know, how, what, what day-to-day life is in, in England and how Americans don't understand that. So he misunderstands when he's supposed to get off the train. He gets off too early, ends up in this town, and there's this whole bit about uh, turn, they all have lights on and he has, like, this massive flashlight, which, you know, looks like a, a, a torch, and they're all kind of looking at him funny because you're not supposed to have bright lights like that because there was a blackout because of German bombers. And while they're wandering around, uh, Allison Smith gets attacked by a mysterious person who throws glue in her hair uh, <laughs> and runs away. And then that sets off the mystery of who put glue in this woman's hair, which is, again, very, like, a, you know, very strange hook to put your movie on. It's it's just, it is just bizarre. And I, I love that, that sequence where, the, where they're chasing, the, you know, the person in the home guard uniform down the streets, just, you know, so dark, you know, it was actually filming little Kent villages, wasn't it? And uh, it just looks so wonderful when they when they're all sort of running after and you can't see what's going on. There's a bit of a pell mell, but yeah, it's, it's a it's a very odd mystery, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And they meet uh, the main the, the guy that gets the main billing is Eric Portman playing a kind of uh, Thomas Culpepper who sort of runs the town. He's kind of one of the the first sort of suspects of this sort of place like who you know what's the purpose of this way? And there's a whole sequence about her getting the glue taken out of her hair and we find out that this has been happening throughout uh, the last couple of weeks in the town. That women have been attacked in the middle of the night getting glue thrown in their hair and the, that's the whole setup is like why is this happening? What's going on? And it's just, and then the movie kind of eases back on that mystery and kind of really just has the characters wander around the town and sort of seeing the sights and, and experiencing British life in, in, you know, while the war was going on. I said, it's, I was real. I, I had to watch this movie twice through to kind of just get my handle on what it was. Pal and Pressburger were trying to say, I mean, what, when did you first see this movie? I think I first saw it on Saturday afternoon when BBC Two used to show old films on Saturday afternoon in the 1970s. Uh, they showed it then. And it was interesting to me because I don't know whether you've ever seen any episodes of the British 60s and 70s TV sitcom Dad's Army. I have not. It's, it's, set, it's, set, it's set during the war and it's about, you know, I think there must have been a US version but of the Home Guard who are, you know, the, the guys who were too young to join the army, too infirm or too old. So they would be on the home front, basically Dad's Army, you know, they were the older guys. And there's a little bit of that flavour in this movie, which I quite like, sort of thing, you know, the guys back home. And, yeah, that, that was when I first saw it. It, it stayed with me ever since. We, it came up again when I was doing my, my film and English studies course at university. We had to sort of watch it. And I enjoyed the film, but they also made us read some Chaucer, which was pretty heavy stuff, not too keen. <laughs> There's a, a, a later, there's a later sequence. Again, this film is not, even though it's again ostensibly a mystery, it's not paced like a mystery, because um, pretty much about a little bit more than the halfway point, uh, they uh, figure out that this guy Culpepper, Eric Portman, is the guy who is committing the glue uh, attacks, and we find out why. It's because he is uh, he's a gentleman farmer, but he gives local history lectures to soldiers stationed in the districts. And he doesn't want the soldiers to be distracted from their duties by all the local women. So he's been attacking these women to get them away from the men. And this this whole reveal happens on a – I'm not giving anything away because this movie is not about the mystery. It's really about the, the, the acting, the, the, the performances and sort of the, the little details and the, the mise-en-scene as opposed to the, you know, the, the plot. But they find out on the train, Culpepper basically admits – what he's been doing, why he's been doing it. And that happens at the 90-minute mark, and this movie is two hours. It still has another half hour to go after they reveal the mystery of this whole thing. And it's, again, when I watched it, I was like, wow, that okay, they've just they've just revealed the mystery, and this movie still has another quarter to go. It does, it because it just goes on from there, and, you know, that's where the, 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 sort of the, the pilgrimage aspect really comes to the fore when all three characters go to Canterbury to the cathedral, and they all get some kind of blessing akin to what the medieval pilgrims who were going on the on the trail of Thomas Becket to Canterbury might have got. But I won't reveal what they are, just in case. Right, because the film opens, uh, the film starts back in the, like, the 14th century, during the actual sort of Canterbury Tale era, and it features an extraordinary shot where uh, a bunch of the characters look up in the sky and they see this bird flying around, and then the bird, uh, through, via a cut, transforms into a bomber plane which is which is one of uh, they talk about in comparison to uh, stanley kubrick's 2001 where the caveman throws the bone in the air and it turns into a space station it's one of the biggest time jumps 
in all of film history, this shot of this bird turning into a B1 because it jumps, the, the thing jumps 500 years into the, into the future with this, which is, again, you know, like, wow, this is, they, you have to really pay attention to these Powell and Pressburger movies. Like, there's all these wonderful little details that go right by, and they really, uh, res- they really respect the viewer where you have to like, really hone in and pay attention. And as you mentioned, I, I will admit, um, the first time I watched this movie, I did not get it. Like, I didn't get why these three characters were on this, on this journey and, then re- and why it was even called a Canterbury tale. And then I realized it's like, okay, as Culpepper even says, Chaucer's pilgrims traveled to Canterbury to receive a blessing or to do penance. And all three of these characters, uh, Peter and Bob and Sheila, or Allison, I'm sorry, all go through something while they're in Canterbury. They all experience some sort of blessing or, pe- or experience a penance as they wander through the town. And again, it's sort of extraordinary to, to sort of have it have it revealed like that. Like I watched the movie, I did a bunch of reading on it, and then I watched it the second time. And once I watched it the second time, I was like, oh, okay, you're, I'm seeing how it's unfolding. But, you know, I will admit the first time I was sort of just, you know, completely confused as to what they, what this film was about. Yeah, because yeah, the Kubrick thing when I was watching it, rewatching it on, on Sunday, and I said I saw that sequence with the hawk going to the air, and the, and the, the medieval nobleman's face, you know, segue into that of a, a modern a modern army officer. I thought, oh gosh, yes, I've spotted something, and then I did some reading. I thought everyone else has spotted the same thing, but uh, towards the end, yeah, when they when they go into Canterbury, and there's, there's a quite you know a no dialogue sequence where you're seeing, you know, signage of you know going into the, into the city of sort of. You know, really shops bombed out, shops relocated, telling you what they've gone to. It's like some kind of strange funeral procession, the, the tone of it, the melancholy. And it was just the thing that was, you know, about sort of, nine, you know, I was born in 1964, it was, you know, about two decades before I was born. And I'm watching that thinking, my gosh, the things that the, the people were going through, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the hardships these people experience. There's this whole other sequence of uh, where we see people out farming. And this, these films, these Powell and Pressburger movies have these great details of people really doing things. It's not fake. There's this moment where there's a character talking to Sheila and this character is um, has to get milk out of a jug. And she pops the top of the milk jug and clearly either the actress or the prop person or whoever must have shaken the milk jug too much because when she pops the <laughs> lid, the milk comes shooting out all over her hand and she has to kind of like clean it up. And any other movie, I think they would have been like, you know, all right, cut, take two, we got to do that over again. But because it's a real moment, they just let it go and they let the actress just sort of handle it as if you would be in real life. I mean, that's something that would really happen. Uh, and I, I love all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's Again, these, these films just don't have a tone like you see in any other kind of movie. Yeah, and they, like, you, they say details to watch out for. Did you then? Did you look up the name of the pub, the hand, the, the, hand, the hand of glory? What that was all about. Also, I, I noticed this uh, as I was watching it. These movies definitely pass the Bechdel test, where they have women talking to one another, not about male characters. I mean, these these Powell and Pressburger wrote great parts for women and often made them the leads of their movies. And they have their own internal life and they have their own you know, storylines that don't necessarily involve men, which I always thought is, again, very, very sort of ahead of their ahead of their game. Um, the journey that uh, the three of them make, the, the individual journeys that they make, I got the one, like I was able to follow the thing with um, Bob Johnson because there's this whole bit about his girlfriend back home has stopped writing him. And he is 
really uh, despondent over that because he thinks that she's left him. And uh, at one point, uh, Allison says something like, well, maybe, you know, maybe the letters haven't found their way to you. He's like, oh, no, no, no. I, I think she's I think she's given up, given me up and she's abandoned that. And th- so that storyline, when that gets resolved, uh, to me was like, oh, OK, I could see how it was easier to follow. The one with Dennis Price, where he gets to play the organ at the end, was that something you could? I never got. I never got a full sense of like how important that was to him, uh, even when it plays be, off in the final scene. Yeah, it seemed to be a, bit, a little bit tacked. Honestly, they hadn't really worked out what his what his his little character arc would be. I mean, he mentioned he mentioned earlier on in the film. You know, he's got. He says, you know, before joining, being conscripted, he had you know the best the best job a guy could have. If likes what he likes, of being a cinema organist. But I don't remember any point in the film where he says that you know he wants to go and play a bark in Canterbury Cathedral. So it's nice that he gets to do it at the end, but it's seen, you know, compared to what Allison gets and what Sergeant Bob gets, it seems like a little bit less consequential. Yeah, uh, Allison's Allison's storyline is about that her boyfriend, who she's believed killed in the war, is survive survives, and the fa- his father, who blocked the marriage because he thought his son could do better for a shop girl, finally relents. So she gets, uh, you know, she kind of gets what she wants. These again, the three of them go through this. Uh, journey, and at, at the end of the film, again, I'm not giving anything terribly away, but Peter gets to play the music of Johann Sebastian Bach on a large organ at the Canterbury Cathedral before he leaves it with his unit, and he decides not to report Culpepper to the Canterbury police as he planned to do, and so they end up all just leaving the town, sort of having been transformed, and again, there's, I love the, some of the dialogue in this movie is really very interesting. There's this whole bit where um, Bob runs into one of his fellow soldiers, and the fellow, the, the soldier says something like, do you want to get some tea? And Bob's like, tea? I don't want tea. This, you get, there's too much tea around here. And then one guy says, it's a habit like marijuana. And Bob says, I'll take, I'll take the marijuana. And you're like, just hearing somebody in a 1944 film talk about marijuana is like, whoa. It's true. Yeah, and then someone points out, you know, it's, it's the, t- the tea drinking countries of the world that are still free. Yeah. <laughs> and I, another bit of dialogue I liked is... Uh, when Alison's with the, the wheelwrights, the people now wheelwright, they make they make the wheels for cart for carts, I think, don't they? And the Jim Horton, the wheelwright, says to uh, Alison about her hair, "I suppose that will learn you not to run around at night." And she goes, "On the contrary, I shall go out every night until I catch him." And that's like what you say. I mean, she's a woman with real agency. Yeah, she's terrific. Sheila Sim is really, really good in this movie. I'm not that familiar with him. She with her. I'm sorry. She lived until 2016. She was alive just just until last year. Uh, she did another movie uh, with this actor, Eric Portman, who plays Culpepper. She did a movie called Great Day, which I've never seen. She mostly it was in all British stuff. She stopped working in 1959. Uh, so I don't know what she was doing for the next 60 to 70 years after that. Well, you know, you know she was married to Sir Richard Attenborough. Oh, oh okay. All right. I can see that makes a lot of sense. Then. Yeah, okay. she's probably just really calm, you know, probably just happy being quiet, maybe doing the odd bit of theatre or something like that. Yeah. But, but Eric Portman, I know you said you've seen some Parallel and Pressburger movies. Have you seen uh, the 49th Parallel? I have not seen 49th Parallel. I know. I've he's seen. One, yeah, he's wonderful. That's after one where he plays, he plays, he plays a, a German submarine commander where they're trying to get, you know, they're stranded off Canada, off uh, the coast of, the, of North America, and they're trying to get through Canada to the US, which hadn't yet entered the war. To, to try and be safe, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thriller. But he got to play a lot of Nazis and aristocrats, even though he was from Halifax in West Yorkshire in England. He was, you know, a pretty working-class guy. Yeah, Powell and Pressburger had kind of a stock company of people that they used over and over again, because uh, 
uh, he was also in, um, he's, well, he said he's in 49th Parallel, but Palin Pressburger, like, I've seen Stairway to Heaven slash Matter of Life and Death. I've seen I Know Where I'm Going. And I've seen the Tales of Hoffman. Uh, so, and these are all, like, again, really completely, de- The Thief of Baghdad, I've seen that one. But they also have The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. One of our aircraft is missing. Black Narcissus. The Red Shoes, which I think is the one most people consider the real classic. So it's I, I would I every one of their movies I've seen I really like because they are just so unusual and the, again for for two guys to be able to be so sort of creatively in sync with one another was pretty remarkable because they had a they worked together for something like twenty years. Absolutely, and you know when when the the hits started drying up, the, you know they, they split up as filmmakers, but they, they continued to work and they were best friends till the day they died. They're they're. And I, like I said, I love that the, they, they traded in and out in terms of um, Technicolor. I mean, their stairway to have is in color. This film was in black and white. It's beautiful. Those opening sequences at the train station are like uh, a film noir. They're so deep, steeped in shadow and, and mystery. And it's, they, these guys are, I don't know, really remarkable, remarkable guys. And Michael Powell, just as a fun fact, his wife was uh, Thelma Schoonmacher, who is Martin Scorsese's editor. Oh, yes. Wow. And it was. I believe, I believe this is one of Martin Scorsese's favorite films as well. I believe so. Yeah, and Scorsese helped get Michael Powell kind of noticed again because Michael Powell, on his own, made a movie called Peeping Tom, about a serial killer in 1961, I believe, and the film was considered so offensive and so disgusting that it pretty much ruined his career. Now people regard it as a as a classic, but at the time it was not popular and really sort of just ruined Powell's career. But Scorsese was instrumental in sort of getting Powell's films. Reappraised, and now a lot of these movies are all on the Criterion Collection. I mean, they've been discovered again because they realize just how you know unique they are. And they said the Can- Canterbury Tale is one of the less famous ones. When you sent it to me, uh, I was completely unfamiliar with it. You know, I was like, I'd never even heard of this, and I always assumed that from the title, it was like said in the past, it was like a Canterbury Tale. And when yeah, I sat yeah. down to watch, I I didn't do any research on it before I put it in. I just started watching, it. and I was like, oh, that's what. Oh, this movie's completely not about that. No, absolutely not. No, it's lovely. And one, of, one of the, I mean, one of the things I like about it is you get so many sort of little British character actors. And like you say, some you know, some of them from the Powell and Pressburger Refugee Company, and some, some like Charles Horty, who played the station master, who would, who just did like probably hundreds of films. You know, do, again, are you familiar? With, have you ever come across the Carry On series of movies? I have heard of them, but I've never seen any of them. Yeah, he was always in there as like as a, a foolish fop, but he's just, just to see him in a pretty much a straight acting part. It was quite weird when he was so young. And, and then there's the, the girl who, the, who plays the maid who's running around the pub really, really quickly, Esma Cannon, Australian actress, and she was in a BBC, sorry, a BBC comedy called The Rag Trade, but she was just in so many things, and it's just lovely to see these faces pop up in such a fantastic film. Dennis Price, after this, went yeah. on to do a whole lot of Hammer movies. He's in The Horror of Frankenstein and Twins of Evil, which Chris covered over on Supermates Podcast, Son of Dracula. So he went on. He had a very long career up until his death in 1973. He just kept working. Uh, so he, he did a lot of this stuff. And he's, of the three leads, he's the one that probably gets the least amount to do and gets the least dialogue, even though, again, he's sort of ostensibly kind of the main yeah. character. Uh, so he was the one I, I, as I mentioned, like I found his story the hardest to kind of track because he seems a very internal character. He doesn't talk a lot. And so when he gets to play the organ at the end, which is this big deal, it didn't come across as like some 
you know, huge reveal or anything. But but they're all again, they're all really good. They're all very unusual performances, as you talk about. They're they're all it's it's these. I I'm, I know I'm just repeating myself here because I don't have a whole ton to say about it because these films you really just have to kind of experience. Yeah, but but apparently he's quite lucky to have been in the film because it seems that uh, Michael Powell originally wanted uh, another member of his record company, Roger Livesey, Colonel Blimp, to be in the movie as in his part, as Dennis Price's part, and he also wanted Deborah Carr to be Sheila Sims' part. And I can't imagine the film with those. I mean, the brilliant actors, but I can't imagine this film with anyone other than these people that seem so right in their roles. And like and like you say, I mean, John, you know, John Sweet was basically playing himself. I suppose it's a little like in best years of their lives, or best years of our lives, also covered on the podcast. Right, yeah, with Harold uh, Russell, Harold, yeah, yeah. Harold Russell playing, you know, playing a, a version of himself. It's just very clever casting. Yeah, John. Exactly. We're going to go back to John Sweet is just terrific in this movie, and and part of it is if you're not if you're a non actor, you have to know how to be. The directors know have to know how to handle you. They have to be able to get a performance out of you, and and Powell and Pressburger really are able to to get that. I mean, he's very funny. He's great with like props, and he's able to, you know, fill the fill the space, which is again really hard to do if you're a non actor. And he's great with the other actors. I mean, he's he's a really interesting guy. I wish that he was sort of more famous because uh, he's he just sounds like a really interesting guy. And he was he was around until 2011. He lived to be 95 years old. Bless him, bless his heart. Uh, so it's I wish there was more about him because I said how many times you get to see a lead role played by a non-actor like that and be able to to carry it off so perfectly and I would love to know like I'm trying to picture like him getting permission from the army to do this movie you know like isn't he in service like he could just spend time and make this movie yeah they probably use you know said use it as part of the propaganda effort or something like that they did a few of those Powell and Pressburg didn't they so but uh, yeah I wonder I wonder I wonder how John Sweet's family reacted yeah when when the film started being rediscovered in the late 1970s and you know, probably someone never even knew he'd done it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, probably, yeah. Grandpa was in a movie? I didn't know that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of, they made a lot of movies back then that were designed to kind of like booster, bolster the, the, the relation between countries. And that's kind of also what this is about, because even though Bob is, you know, flummoxed as to how to operate, a lot of the stuff that goes on in England, there's this scene in the hotel room where you can't quite figure out the, the sink with the hot water about how that works. It's all kind of good-natured. Everybody treats him with respect, and he is not like you're – he's a sweet – no pun intended. He's a sweet guy. You know, He's not like an ugly American who sort of barges things. He's very respectful of the local cultures, and he wants to learn about people, and he's very friendly. I mean, it, obviously they're not going to paint an American soldier in 1944 as a, somebody un – you know, somebody that's not a good guy, but it's, it's, I like how accepting he is of the culture. I mean, he's, when he first arrives in the town, he's frustrated because again, he's stuck in the town and he's the whole thing about, you know, wait a minute. I thought the guy said Canterbury was next. No, no, no. Canterbury's after. Oh, okay. But after once he gets there, he really becomes very open hearted. There's a scene where he goes on a farm and he's in like a hay bale and he's just kind of charmed by the whole place, about the whole rustic nature of it and it's 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 fun to watch him sort of learn what these people's lives are like it really really is not i love that scene where he's he's with the wheelwrights and you know sort of sheila sims character allison you know she's been sort of chatting away and she doesn't really get get the local guys at all even though she's english whereas the american guy you know because he's you know come from a lumber background as well and he can talk sawmills with them and age how long it takes to age one this that and the other and makes a real connection because it's just 
it's just people. You know, you either connect or you don't. It's not to do with where you're from at all. And it's just, I mean, it's at it, time, you know, early, early on, yeah, they give him a little, a little bit of brash dialogue because he is such a sweet character. And, you know, obviously, he's just such a sweet guy. It was nice. I mean, I had that bit of dialogue where, where one, one of the locals said, you know, this is Chillingbourne, Sergeant Johnson, not Chicago, the local policeman. And Bob goes, you know, hey, what kind of a crack is that? I come from Oregon. And it's, he's such a lovely presence. Yeah, he really is. It's it's great. I said, and the scene of them on the the train. I love how when they're when they're confronting Culpepper, um, it's lit like a, again, it's lit like a noir movie. There's a, the, the three of them in these deep shadows, and the Bob has got this pipe that he's smoking, and they're all staring at him. And Sheila Sims' face is very stern. It's almost like Pal and Pressburger kind of like poking you in the ribs a little because it's they're acting like this is super serious. You know, in in any other movie, this would be the big reveal of the murderer. But here, it's like the guy says, like, yeah, I, I was throwing glue in your hair because I wanted the boys to pay attention to my British history lectures. It's important that they know these things. And you're like, you know, and yet if you looked at stills from it, you would think this is like a very serious movie. Yeah, yeah. And also you were saying that, you know, you wanted to keep the women faithful to their boyfriends and husbands who were aware, which is, you know, <laughs> Mr. Patriarch, you decide what's right for everybody there. Yeah, <laughs> near the end of the movie, there's this great sequence again where uh, one of the other the one of the other soldiers is recording this parade through his video camera, and we see it through his camera, like his point yes. of view. And again, it's another like extraordinary shot where Powell and Pressburger were really assuming that the audience could sort of follow this visual language. You know, they, they would they would assume that you would be able to figure out what you're looking at when, you know, this is still 1944. Citizen Kane was only a couple of years old. Uh, we're not that far away from when Cecil B. DeMille was cross-cutting, you know, between scenes and people thought that was going to confuse viewers because it was like, uh-huh, oh, you uh-huh. know, how, 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 you can't follow a movie. It's got to be more linear. But here, you know, we're all of a sudden seeing things through a video camera and or, uh, through a film camera. And, you know, there's none of that explanation. It's just Pound Pressburger just are just figuring our audiences are smart, smart enough to follow all this. And again, that's what I think that's what makes these films feel so fresh. I mean, these still films feel very contemporary, even though the, you know, obviously it's set a long time ago and they're dealing with issues from a long time ago. It, they, they, they don't seem to date very, very poorly. They, they seem very, you know, current. And, and again, I use the word fresh again, but that really is how they feel. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, it, it's just such a good watch. Actually, one thing I was—I didn't realize until I was sort of, you know, again, you know, doing, doing a little bit of background reading, like like yourself about the film. I didn't know about the whole business with with sort of Kim Hunter. Did you read about that? Yeah, that uh, for America, they decided to add some footage with Raymond Massey narrating it, and Kim Hunter. They completely added her as a character, and of course, Kim Hunter was in Stairway to Heaven, which was the film that we covered. But they they felt that it needed that kind of like boost. For American audiences, which is once again, like, no, it does. I haven't seen that version. Uh, how can you add a character at the last moment? That doesn't. I can't imagine how that would work. I don't know yet. Cause I'm happy enough to know that you know from the from the end of the movie that we have, you know that she's you know she's been stationed in Australia as a WAF or a WAC or whatever they were called. Sorry, and that she's alive and well. You can just assume we'll get back together at some point. And I can't imagine how how the film would be with a narration by you know. Again, fantastic actor Raymond Massey, but the narration that we have by Ed, you know, Esmond Knight, who has about well, three little parts in the film, including the village idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it without him, you know. That is a that is the harsh scene, but the scene with the village idiot, where they like actively call the guy the village idiot, and at one point when he provides some clues to the mystery, 
they they like basically thank him and then they let him wander away and then they kind of make fun of him for being the village idiot while he's still in earshot. We see him off in the background and I'm like, wow, they're like making fun of this guy for being the village idiot and he can hear everything they're saying. They were very rude. I mean, I like to imagine that he was just you know, not a village idiot at all, just having them on completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the film ends, uh, the final shot of the film ends where it begins with is the shot of the the church, the, the, the actual church, which is a real building, St. George's Church Tower. It's still around. It's still available for people to go visit. Um, they couldn't shoot inside of it because of... Uh, Various the, the war restrictions, a couple different things, but they managed apparently to fake some shots, build some sets to make it look like it. But I mean, that church that they did manage to grab just a couple of brief scenes from is available. You can go see it. I know if you go to the Wicked, the film's Wikipedia page, you can see a picture of it, and there's tourists walking around. So, uh, you know, it's like the, the again, Powell sending this sort of love letter to his hometown, which is really very sweet. It really, it really is. One of the things that seem to be a bit of a dichotomy is that uh, to me the film does have a you know, certain kind of magic and then I came across this quote from Emmerich Pressburger about filmmaking and he says I think that a film should have had should have a good story a clear story and it should have if possible something which is probably the most difficult thing it should have a little bit of magic magic being untouchable and very difficult to cast you can't deal with it at all you can only try to prepare some nests, hoping that a little bit of magic will slide into them. And I think, you know, yes, they found the magic there. But I also came across uh, the, the Archers, which was their filmmaking company together. Their charter for the Archers, and I had five points about filmmaking, about, you know, how they, they wanted to, you know, had, 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 had to make money for the investors and this, that and the other. But in the charter, there's also a thing, point four of the charter. No artist believes in escapism, and we secretly believe that no audience does. We've proved at any rate that they will pay to see the truth for other reasons than her nakedness. But to me, it's just, I know it's set in, you know, it's set in a version of the real world. But I would, I would say that's, it's full of escapism and magic, that film. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there is the, not to, I don't know, I hate to say this, but it's almost like these, these films are dusted with like a little bit of like magic fairy dust kind of, because it's like they just have this kind of whimsical feel to them. Uh, even again in Stairway to Heaven, there's literal sequences in Heaven, uh, but they all have this kind of very chipper kind of feel to them. Even though they are talking about dark things, I mean, this film is talking about war for Pete's sakes, but they just have this kind of like can-do spirit that I guess Pal and Pressburger really brought to a lot of their projects, even their some of their darker films. Uh, and so I haven't seen Black Narcissus. Apparently, that's like the considered one of like the real masterpieces. But yeah, these again, I I always feel. Um, awkward sometimes about trying to talk about a movie like this on the show because I don't think I necessarily do a great job of explaining it. I think you really have to just watch it and just catch the tone of it. And they really are, this this film in particular is just really unique and interesting and charming. And you, you kind of just get lost in it. And it is, you almost feel like that you've been to this town after you've seen this movie. You know, which is always a little dangerous because it's a movie. That's not, it's not a substitute for actually being there. But it, you, I feel like you get close. I feel like this film gives you an idea of the people that existed in this town and this time and place in 1944 during the war in the rural county in England. And it gives you an idea of what it would have been like to stay a couple of days in there and just sort of root around and have fun. And it, I think Powell and Pressburger were that good at being able to sort of get that across. 
I think I think you're right, but I did I did come across a, a review from 1944 of the film, so obviously you know when it came out, and I don't know whether you, whether you come across this review from Picture Goer magazine at all. No, no, go ahead. If I, if I could just read a couple of lines, yeah, just, just to see what this, this guy was saying. It doesn't actually say who it was, but it says you know, the Canterbury Tale, uh, two stars. As a travel <laughs> as a travel on Canterbury, this meandering and sometimes quite inexplicable picaresque comedy drama has its points. One had a feeling that at the end someone should have said, and so we say goodbye to Canterbury and the unbalanced JP who put glue on girls' heads to stop them going out with honest soldiers. Frankly, I did not know what it was all about. I admired its scenic properties and much of the acting was first class, but as to the moral it had to point or the entertainment it was seeking to provide, I was completely bewildered. <laughs> well, uh, you know, okay, there you go. <laughs> I think I think I might have had a, a different review about from Margaret Mitchell, the writer of Gone with the Wind. Did you read about that? Yes. Go go ahead and tell people what that was about. That's kind of a dark <laughs> little piece of trivia. A little sad. It seemed that you know, Gone with the Wind author Margaret Mitchell was on her way to see a screening of the movie with her husband when she was hit by a speeding car. She was knocked out. She went to hospital and never woke up, and she died five days later. Tragic. <laughs> Oh, God. Luckily, uh, for those of you that want to see this movie, you don't have to go to the take those risks getting hit by a car to see it. Uh, it is available from the Criterion Collection, and it's on iTunes, so you can get it on iTunes, and I really would recommend it. It's, it's again, not a movie that you can put on and then uh, pay your bills or cook in the kitchen or, you know, clean the house. You have to kind of sit, pay attention, because this, this, film's, this film's charms are not – also immediate. There, a lot of them are very subtle. Very, I get a lot of great visuals. It's, it's a film that you probably need to watch at least a couple of times. And I hope I don't make it sound like it's homework because it's not. I really did find it charming. But it's these these Pal Pressburger movies really wear well over time, and they wear well with multiple viewing. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, I would recommend to give it a try. Maybe you could try some of their other films first, but find your way to this one because it was really charming and I, I really appreciate you sending it to me Martin because it never would have been something I would have found on my own really because uh, and I want to see their other movies but this one was, would have been lower on the list because I hadn't really heard of it and I wasn't familiar with any of the people in it but now that I, I'm really glad that I've seen it Oh, and you're very welcome. I may, and there would be no obligation to talk about it with me later, but I may just send you Black Narcissus because honestly, you have to see that one. I know, Seriously. I gotta see Black Narcissus. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe for your birthday. Okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So, well, I think that is gonna do it for Canterbury Tale. Like I said, you can find it on the Criterion Collection and it's on iTunes, so it is available. It's a, it's a film of, of, beauty both visual and thematically and with the performances it's just a really nice sweet movie and uh in in this day and age i think it's a it's a worthwhile thing to watch a movie with people being nice to one another you know uh, people going through hardships but uh, coming out better the other side i think that's a good thing to see so uh, martin thank you so much for coming back on i always enjoy talking to you where can people find you on the internet well, I've got a, a little comics blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, which can be found by typing in those very words, Too Dangerous for a Girl. And I'm on Twitter at, at March Gray, G-R-A-Y. And that's on Facebook if you want to find me. But otherwise, just hither and yon. I'm around. I'm on, I'm on this Roman road to Kent. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, with our show, you can find back episodes on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we're talking movies on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next week, that's a wrap. Hey! 
Why, you homesick, sad sack GI. Hey, what in Canterbury you been doing with your three days leave? Learning, Sergeant, learning. Since when did you ever learn anything except from the Indians? Hey, can I shoot inside? Well, ask the verger. The what? The verger. He's the number one man around here. Hey, you don't know what you missed in London. Nightclubs like New York. You've never been in New York. Oh, and girls and telephone numbers. Wait, I got a million of them. You know about the old road. That's a new one on me. Where is it, Piccadilly? Piccadilly. It's a road, a real one. Okay, what about it? It's the Pilgrim's Road. Gee, even you know about the Canterbury Pilgrims. Yeah, you know, I seem to remember flunking them. Where does it go to, this old road? You're standing on it. It goes right here to Canterbury Cathedral. Come on in. You're a pilgrim yourself, but oh, you don't know it. Hey, let's have some tea first, huh? That stuff? Sure, it's a habit like marijuana. I'll take marijuana. You'll drink tea and like it. I'll drink it, but I won't like it.